Tonight we are continuing our series on the men of Matthew. We're almost done. I think we'll probably have three more after this that we're, we're going to uh, uh, look at. But uh, tonight, after if we've looked at a lot, I'm not going to go through all the list of all the different men we've looked at because uh, I probably couldn't remember them all right now. Uh, but tonight we're going to be uh, looking at Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, the, the man who wanted clean hands. And so if, you, if you'll turn in your Bible to Matthew 27, we're going to read uh, 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 just the first couple of verses and then skip down and read another large uh, section of it. But Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. That's the Roman governor. Now skip down to verse number 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. He said, he said, you know, basically he said, you said it. Um, but verse 12, but, but when he w was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to, for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now the feast it's referring to is the Passover feast, by the way. Verse 16, and, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he, he knew, that is, Pilate knew, that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate asked them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he, and he said, why? What, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I don't know if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Um, uh, the, the Creed uh, is called the Apostles' Creed not because it was written by the, by the Apostles, but because it contains a brief summary of their teachings. But it's, it's uh, one of the most famous declarations of faith and belief in the history of the church, probably the most commonly used creed. And, and, and if you've come from a Pentecostal background like many of us in this room, you don't hear a lot about creeds because that's just not part of our worship. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't read creeds. We don't quote them during the service. We don't have the liturgy in our services, that sort of thing. But, uh, but, but unfortunately, sometimes we miss out on that, on some good things. Because the Apostles' Creed is, is certainly one of the most beautiful expressions of faith and belief that, that has ever been written. I want to read to you what it says. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He descended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, does it's, not C, it's Catholic with a small c, because that word Catholic just means universal. So it just means the, the, the real church all, all around the world. Uh, the, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So that's, that's the Apostles' Creed, been, been quoted for centuries. It's still quoted in, in thousands and thousands upon, uh, of churches all around the world of all kinds of different denominations and different creeds. But some of the most famous, and, and yet, yet in a way, to me, some of the strangest words of the Apostles' Creed are when it says, the, the phrase where it says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. What, what a strange thing it is to me that it doesn't say he suffered under Caiaphas, the high priest. For, in fact, it was Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin who got Jesus crucified. Pilate was manipulated into it. Yet it is he who bears the great responsibility in the Apostles' Creed and in Scripture and, and, and surely in the light of history as well. He bears this responsibility. I, I believe that there is... No way for us to really understand the events of the crucifixion uh, and, and the character and the, and the horrendous sin of Pontius Pilate until we can understand something of the position in which Pilate found himself. So let's look at Pilate as a man, as a government official and as a person in history just for a moment to see what we can learn so that we ourselves can avoid Maybe possibly, possibly these, these kinds of situations. So the first thing is, let's, let's look at the post that Pilate held. Now, the government in Rome, uh, in order to rule this vast area of the empire, they, they, would, they had, uh, there were different names for it. They might be called satraps or governors or procurators or different things like that. But these were, uh, were officials who were appointed to rule and reign over specific geographical areas. And Pilate, during this time period, was the appointed Roman governor of the entire area that came to be known during that time as Palestine, or the, or the area of the Philistines, because Palestine draws its name from the word Philistine. Now, you may have heard, and it's, it's often been taught uh, that, that Pilate was just sort of put upon because he, he had been sent out to this horrible place, Judea, to live in this horrible city, Jerusalem. However, I believe the, the problem with that teaching is that it really fails to grasp what was really going on in the Roman world. To be the procurator of Judea was not a position to be spurned. Uh, for, for this province was immensely profitable for the Roman Empire. The, the taxes that were gained, the, the caravan routes, the trading, all, all of these things that were happening in these areas, you know, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, Jerusalem, all, all of the traffic of the world passed through this area of Israel, uh, although there, there was no official 
uh, Israel really to, to speak of by the time of Pontius Pilate. Uh, there was no Israeli government, so to speak. To, to, and so to be the Roman governor of this, of this entire region was actually an, a, 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 an extremely powerful position. According to Josephus, to be appointed the Roman governor of Judea was a phenomenally important position in the Roman Empire. So Pilate was a person who must have enjoyed some sense of political success in Rome. Furthermore, we, we can understand from history that, uh, that this was a highly intense political situation in Judea. Uh, although this, was, this area was highly profitable and it was massively important, it was the most difficult post in foreign service in all of the worldwide Roman Empire. It required a, 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 a higher level of diplomacy, it, a greater level of leadership and authority and ability and, and, and balance and maturity and wisdom. And it required more than, than any place else in the Roman Empire. So the governors that were sent to live in Judea were considered by Rome to be their finest foreign service agents. They, they were considered to be men who could handle the most difficult ambassadorial questions. They were considered men of the highest level of discretion, men of the greatest trustworthiness, because, because even to this day, that, that area of the world, uh, now the modern state of Israel, it, it, it was the crossroads of humanity, and history and politics and military conflict. The, it, the, it is the most important piece of real estate in the world. To, the most important re, piece of real estate in the world today is Israel. And to this day, it, it is so as it was even then. And, and Rome knew that. Rome understood the significance of this part of the world. It, it was the crossroads of three continents, which as far as Rome knew, don't forget, that was the whole world. So... This is Pilate's situation. Pilate had to deal with, also had to deal with a highly charged, malevolent atmosphere because the Jews over whom he ruled absolutely hated him. They despised him. They despised his centurions. They despised his soldiers. They despised his Caesar. They despised his government. It was, in their view, an occupation of the worst order, political, military, and religious occupation. And, and he had to deal with this constant bickering and infighting among the Jews themselves, the Pharisees against the Sadducees, the Sadducees against the Herodians, the Herodians against the other two, and they're all fighting and bickering back and forth. There was this constant fighting going on. And, and if, if, you ever, uh, if you've ever read the works of Josephus, you'll find that, the, that there, was, there, was, there was some wealthy man or some prominent person constantly rising up in this area who, who would build up this little private army. So there were these little private armies that moved throughout the area of Palestine the whole time during, during the time of, of Pilate. So just, just try to imagine what that would be like today. Imagine a Middle East where you have the Iranian-backed militia, militia and the Lebanese Christians and the Palestinian Hamas and the Israeli army all moving all through the region, uh, unfettered, all the time with tanks blazing. So, so you know, they, they, would, they would talk about Pax Romana, which is just a, uh, it's just a Latin term that means the peace of Rome. 
And they said that because they, they, they claimed and they, they reveled in this worldwide peace of the Roman government. It was really just a, an enforced peace. It was a situation where uh, they, they said, we have Pax Romana, but that just meant that if you did anything wrong, they were going to kill you. So that was, that was pretty much all it meant. But they would say that, but what they, what they actually would have is this, in Judea particularly, they would have this constant blazing war going on in Palestine at the time of this governor and then at the time of Felix and Festus who followed him. So Pilate lived in a highly volatile situation, constantly in danger of execution or assassination. Furthermore, Pilate had to deal with the political intrigue of Rome at his back. One civil servant or another was constantly being called back to Rome to be executed or imprisoned. Sometimes they, were, sometimes they weren't called back. Sometimes they were poisoned on the field to which they had been assigned. And so this entire region was a seething turmoil of military and political rattlesnakes. And, and, and then at his back was the political intrigue that was going on back in Rome. So, so when you think of Pilate, listen, what you have is you have a man who is probably living on the verge of a nervous breakdown all the time. In addition to the situation of his post as governor of Judea, you also see and you need to understand that Pilate was the product of the great contradictions of the Roman society in which he lived. Let me, let me give you a couple of those. Roman society talked a great deal about virtue. Virtue was a premier topic in the Roman Empire. However, the, the, the only problem was there wasn't any virtue to, virtue to be found. Roman society also talked a great deal about law and order. But its bloodthirsty brutality was infamous worldwide. In this brief story, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail about the crucifixion of Jesus because tonight I want to really zero in on the person and the position of Pontius Pilate. But in this story, there are two insights into this contradiction of the Roman delight in law and order, what they would call Roman nobility and the brutality of Rome. The contradiction is clear in this passage of Scripture at several points. One is where Pilate determined to let Jesus go. You know that, right? I mean, he, he wanted to, he just said, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. He wanted to let him go. And I'm going to come back to this, but, but Pilate is afraid of Jesus. He's just kind of spooky over this whole deal. Uh, he doesn't like this guy being killed and he doesn't want the responsibility for him being killed. He wants to let him go. But in order to let him go, what does he do? He resorts to the tactics of Roman brutality and beats Jesus senseless. He scourges him. He, he beats him until he's covered with blood, face, hands, body, back. He is bleeding all over. Then, then he brings him out in front of this bloodthirsty mob that's screaming, crucifying, and he hopes to intimidate them, hoping that when they see him, a Jew, this rabbi, this, this, this uh, uh, Messiah figure, he's hoping that when they see him in such a horrible, horrible state, uh, I, I mean, listen, to, to have been beaten by these Roman whips, um, to have been scourged, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And he, he's hoping that when he brings Jesus out on the balcony, overlooking Gabbatha, which is just the place of the stone pavement, he brings Jesus out there and he makes this dramatic statement. 
He stands him out, beaten, bloody, and he says, Behold the man. He says, if you want Jesus, there he is. They bring Jesus out just covered in blood. He's, he's hoping to shock these highly religious Jewish audience into saying, oh, okay, okay, that's enough. That, that's enough. You can let him go now. He's, he's suffered. You see the contradiction? And that he saw nothing wrong with him, wanted to let him go, and yet was willing to beat him in order to try to satisfy justice? It's a contradiction. On, on the one hand, He's this basically, basically decent chap who wants to let a good man go. So in order to do it, he beats him senseless. You, you see that contradiction, right? So uh, this is a contradiction that honestly was at the very heart of Roman society and culture. There's another place where you, you see the same thing. And, and it's in the issue of the treatment of Jesus from the time of the order to crucify him until it's actually executed. This is just so horrible, I don't even... I hate to dwell on it, but the, the, the prisoner, the Roman prisoner who was hated by Rome would not be scourged before he was crucified often because the scourging so weakened the person that he couldn't sustain himself on the cross. In other words, they would, they would, if they really didn't like this prisoner, they wouldn't scourge him because he would die too quickly. He wouldn't suffer enough. Because crucifixion was supposed to last days, sometimes even weeks. Sometimes the Romans would even give them food and water on the cross to keep them alive, to, to sustain them, to strengthen them. Sometimes they would nail a plank of wood underneath their feet so they could push up. Because what was it that killed a man during crucifixion? It was, it was suffocation. I won't go into the physical aspect of how that happens, but that's what kills him. And, and so it, the muscles spasm, they can't breathe. But if you can release the pressure from your arms and hands, then you can release the muscles to breathe. And so if they can push up, they can take a breath and live for a little bit longer. They would, they would do that, particularly with, soldier, with, uh, with prisoners, that they wanted to last longer, to suffer longer. They didn't like them. But uh, so, so the prisoner they hated, they tried to sustain. See the contradiction? The prisoner that they liked or that they felt pity for, they would actually beat that person nearly to the point of death so that he would die quickly during the crucifixion. So you, you see what I'm trying to say? You see this monstrous, mixed up, horrible society in which Pilate lived. He was a product of this. Now, now one more thing so that you'll understand uh, I'm just giving you some background to help you understand the man Pilate and, and what he's dealing with during this trial of Jesus. Here it is. Pilate is, uh, is also a man who is, is deeply aware of the, of the pagan Roman religion and superstitions. You know, we in our modern world, we tend to think of, of the Roman as being irreligious or non-religious, but nothing could be further from the truth. Rome was among the most religious societies that have ever existed. I mean, they didn't have one God. They had hundreds, thousands of gods, and, and they sacrificed to them. 
Did you know that every time a religious Roman took a drink of wine, before he'd take that drink of wine, he'd pour uh, a little bit out of, the, out of that, uh, the cup of wine onto the ground as, as some sort of offering he poured out on the floor. He, in essence, he tithed, tithed every cup of, of wine that he had because he, he was doing that to, to appease an, uh, one of his gods. And every time he went out to battle, he would commit his soul to his god. You know, uh, I think a way to kind of understand this, the, the Hindu mindset today is similar to the ancient Roman mind. When a Hindu leaves his house to go on a journey, he, he picks one God because, of course, in the Hindu religion, there are also uh, multiplied thousands of gods. And, and he would pick one God and he would say to himself when he's leaving his house, I commit myself into your care. So the thing is, when you're preaching to the, to the pagan, to the Roman or to the Hindu there, there's only one, you, you, what you say to them is you say there's only one God and you have to commit yourself to him. Well, see, the, what he wrestles with, the question for him is not the committing himself because he's used to that. He, he gets that. He understands committing himself. But the question is whether there's God or gods, whether there's one or many. So you have, have this man, Pilate, who is likely a profoundly religious man living in a profoundly religious culture and society that just absolutely sees gods everywhere. And to complicate that, you add to that the Romans' belief, and this was Greek and Roman as well, their belief in demigods. You know what a demigod was? A demigod is a child of a god and a human and a mortal. So like in their mythology... Like Hercules was a demigod. He was this, he was sub, in their mythology, Zeus was his father and he was, his mother was a mortal, mere mortal human woman. And so that's a demigod. When you hear the term demigod, that's basically half God, half human. So you add to that belief. Now you, you understand maybe why it might be a little confusing for Pilate when, when he begins to hear that Jesus is God in the flesh because he doesn't understand really what that means, but that's not going to be the issue for him, I, I, uh, think about this now. When, when a man stands in front of a first century Jew and he says, I, I am the, the word, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, I am the word of God. And he says, I'm the son of God. When, when he stands there and says, I'm God. And Jesus did that in many different ways. In one place, he even just says, before Abraham was, I am. And he calls, he, use, he, he uh, appropriates that ancient uh, holy name of God from Moses speaking to God, and, and he says, that's me. And when the, when the first century Jew hears that, he says, blasphemy! Blasphemy! However, when a man stands in front of a pagan superstitious Roman who's facing a malevolent society around him, and he's dealing with all of this political intrigue and machinations going on behind him in Rome, and he's afraid to go to Rome, but he's afraid to stay in Palestine with three and a half million people who hate his guts. And this guy walks into his chambers in the middle of the night for a trial and says, are you a God? And he says, yes. All of a sudden, in his mind, he's saying, if I kill this guy... I might just get the wrath of the gods on my life. You understand this? This is a very complicated situation for Pilate. Now, now to, to complicate the whole thing even more, think about this. He's sitting in judgment on Jesus, and, and, and in the middle of the trial, one of the guards walks up to him with a note and says, this is from your wife. 
The note, he opens it up and the note says, I had terrible dreams about this man last night. Now, now think about this. I don't know if you've ever, ever pondered this. Nobody knew that Jesus would be before Pilate the next day. And yet she's dreaming about a man who hasn't even been there yet, right? Certainly Pilate didn't know and without question his wife didn't know. But just to picture the moment, she's, she's passing through the outer chambers and she looks through the doorway into the judgment uh, chamber and, 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 uh, and, and, and she, she looks through there and she says, oh, that, that's the man I dreamed about. I recognize him from those nightmares I had. So she sends a note to her husband and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I suffered many things because of this guy last night. Terrible dreams, nightmares. I, I, I wonder what she dreamed. I, I just, the thought just is so provocative to me. Uh, I, I wonder if she dreamt uh, that there were going to be thousands and thousands, really, really millions upon millions and millions of people worldwide who were saying suffered under Pontius Pilate suffered under Pontius Pilate, suffered under Pontius Pilate. I wonder if she dreamt the Apostles' Creed. Probably not, but I wonder. I wonder if she dreamed about her husband in everlasting hell. I wonder if she dreamed about Jesus sitting on a throne, high and lifted up with a crown sitting on his head, not of thorns, but a crown of judgment sitting on his brow. I wonder if she dreamed about herself in hell. I wonder if she dreamed about the horror of a godless eternity for her husband. We don't know. All we know is that she tossed and turned in turmoil all night long, dreaming her disturbed pagan dreams about the son of the living God. And when she saw him the next morning in the, in the judgment room, she said, something's wrong here. Something's wrong. Get out of this, Pilate. Get out of this. Now are you beginning to sense the tension of Pontius Pilate? We sort of see Pontius Pilate, you know, in, in our historical perspective is this sort of flat cardboard figure wearing a, a Roman helmet, but he was a very complicated man who was caught in a huge squeeze. He, he was caught in a vice. Emotionally, politically, spiritually, religiously, uh, culturally, societally, and it was all threatening to rip him wide open. Now that we understand the position, the person, and the situation of Pilate, just a little bit, what do we see now about the charge against Jesus? What was the charge against Jesus? Well, the charge against Jesus was twofold. Twofold. The first charge was, in the, was really in the religious realm. Jesus claimed to be God. Well, honestly, as for reasons that we've discussed already, that didn't bother Pilate at all. I mean, Tiberius, the emperor of Rome at the time, he claimed to be a god. You know, uh, Caligula, who followed him, he, he actually made the Roman Senate vote to recognize both he and his sister, with whom he was living in an incestuous relationship, to proclaim them both as divine, as gods. In fact, you may not know this, this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but Caligula actually made the Senate um, approve, just because he wanted to humiliate them, he made them approve of his marriage to his horse. Um, he, he, he put a veil on the horse, took it in there, made the Senate uh, serve as witnesses, and, 
and, and said, either you'll uh, approve this or you're going to die. And so they all approved it. They did, he just wanted to humili- humiliate him. So, so Pilate, he's, he's kind of used to madmen claiming to be God, right? I mean, in fact, I mean, you don't kill them when they claim to be God. You, you make them emperor. That's kind of how it worked in Rome. So, so he really has no problems with this claim of Jesus. His problem really was, well, but why is this a, a death sentence offense? But the second charge was civil and political. Jesus claimed to be a king. Now listen, Pilate was not stupid. He did not get to where he was being a stupid man. He, he's caught up in all of this stuff, but he is a highly sophisticated, urbane man of the world, and he understands the political intrigue that's going on behind the scenes. The scenes. And in every gospel, it says Pilate perceived that they, that they had brought Jesus before him out of envy. He knows all the charges are because these guys are jealous and, and he's, they're envious of Jesus and they want to get rid of him. He understands what's going on. He knows exactly what's happening. And so, in response, he tries to break down the objections of the Sanhedrin, but he, but he just can't seem to get them to back off. And finally, he is manipulated and forced to make the decision to execute Jesus, not on religious, but on civil grounds. Because they said to him, if you do not execute this man, you are no friend of Caesar." Now, having given, you, having, having given you the background, the political intrigue, the execution, the, the poisonings, the arrests, the imprisonments, the beheadings, all the weirdness that's going back in the court of Tiberius and Rome and all the hatred that he's facing in Jerusalem, do you understand why this statement has such a tremendous impact on him? Because basically they're saying, we're going to send a telegram to, to Rome. We're, we're, this guy claimed to be a king and he's going to raise up an army in rebellion and you said that was all right. We're going to tell Caesar. That's what was going on. I mean, he almost had to kill him. I mean, if ever a man was manipulated onto the horrendous horns of a dilemma, it was Pontius Pilate. All right, now, now let's look at Pilate's feeble attempt to deliver Jesus. Because here's what we need to understand about this situation. And this is, this is going to lay the foundation to help us understand why, even though he's manipulated into it, even though all these other things are going on, why, was he, why is he held responsible for this? Because we would like to use our circumstances to excuse ourselves a lot of times. We say, well, I did what was, yeah, I know what I did was wrong, but I did because of this. Pilate could use that same argument. So let's, let's, let's talk about this. The first thing is this. Pilate lacked the courage to simply set Jesus free. All Pilate had to do was to say, no, no, you're, you're not going to crucify him. I'm not going to scourge him. I'm not going to imprison him. You're not going to stone him to death. And, and in fact, if you do stone him to death, I'm going to crucify you. All Pilate had to do was say no. Of course, he might have had to face the the potential wrath of Rome. He he would have had to face the wrath of the Sanhedrin, the wrath of the mob. And and for all he knew, maybe even the wrath of God or gods. Nevertheless, nevertheless, all he had to do, if he had the conviction that the man was not guilty, 
All he had to do was to have the courage to stand by his conviction. We are not going to do this. Uh, Dr. Mark Rutland wrote a book a number of years ago about virtue, and there was a chapter in the book about courage. And in that chapter on courage, he tells the true story about a man who worked at a printing company in the Midwest. I think it was in Indiana, but it was the Midwest. I know that show, that for sure. And the printing company signed a contract with a base, with a softcore pornography company that was going to print a magazine through the printing company. And, and this man refused to operate his printing press to print the pornography. And as a result, he was fired. Well, sometime after releasing that book, Dr. Rutland received a letter from a professor at a spirit-filled Pentecostal Bible college. And in this letter, the professor said, I loved your book in every part except the story about the man who ran the printing press. He said, I believe that the man made a futile gesture that never had any redemptive good and he lost his job for no good point at all. He said, your example was not about courage, it was about conviction, and his convictions were misplaced. That's, that's a little scary. I mean, this is not some liberal college I mean, This is a, a, a Pentecostal, Holy Spirit-filled uh, Bible college. But, but when he says that, do, do you see that that's really, that's the very point of having convictions? Have we come to the place... In, in American society where we can't understand that conviction without the courage to make the futile gesture is absolutely useless. I mean, everybody in this room has convictions, right? We all have our convictions. There is nobody in the world without a conviction of any kind. We all have convictions. Of course, here's the truth. All we have to do to let the whole thing go to hell in a handbasket is to sit on our convictions. What we need is courage. We have to have guts, just plain old intestinal fortitude. Having convictions by itself is nothing. It's nothing. It's really meaningless. What we lack is courage. Now, the problem is you say, well, yeah, but somebody, somebody else would have, would have executed Jesus anyway. Well, yeah, that, that's true. But, but then it, it would, if that were happened, then it would say, suffered under Caiaphas, or suffered under Ananias, or suffered under somebody else. However, it says, suffered under Pontius Pilate, because he had it in his power to do something differently. The responsibility rests with him because he had it in his power. He could have stopped it in that moment. And you say, well, what if the mob had just killed him then? What if the mob had just risen up and stoned him to death? Well, yeah, I guess that, that could be a possibility. And you'd say, well, wouldn't that be a futile gesture then? No, it wouldn't have been. It would not have been futile at all. In fact, Pilate might be in heaven now and not in hell. Are we communicating? It may have been futile in one sense of the word, but it certainly would not have been futile for Pilate. 
uh, you know, you, 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 you may say, well, what about this, this poor fellow in the Midwest that he loses his retirement he, because he refused to operate this printing press when porn magazine comes through? He loses his job. He, he loses his retirement. And you, you could look at that and say, what a futile and empty gesture. Well, that, that's fine. That's fine to say that ex except for one thing. God says, well done, good and faithful servant. I believe that we must recapture in this country and in its institutions the ability to act out our convictions courageously, even if it appears futile. L listen to this, my friends. Th th this may be the most important thing that I think God wants to say to us tonight. The futility of gesture in no way invalidates its authority. The fact that it doesn't work doesn't make it wrong. Like John the Baptist, he said to Herod, it's against the law for you to have your brother's wife. Well, in that, in that argument, Herod had a simple reply to that argument. He cut his head off. You know, Herod, I mean, you know, for a man with a limited vocabulary, he could certainly make a point. Well, you, you say, well, that, that was just a futile Futile effort uh, for John the Baptist. No, no, it wasn't. The empty gesture made in authority with the responsibility that is ours is crucial to act on our convictions. Second, Pilate lacked the character to take personal responsibility for his own actions. It, it was a, honestly, it was a pitiful, whiny, pathetic, adolescent gesture to wash his hands in front of the people. To say, no, this is on you, not on me. He was the governor. Pilate was the one in charge. He was responsible. You, you know, there, there is nothing uh, quite like an authority that will stand before the crowd and stand before the camera, whatever it might be, and say, it happened on my watch, I take responsibility. That is a, 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 a far too uncommon and rare sight to see in our world today. To continue to push the responsibility of, uh, 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 off onto underlings and other associates uh, breeds confusion and misplaced charges and accusations and disorientation. You know, you know, I've thought about this, about in light of being the pastor and, and responsibility, and in light of being pastor of this church, when, when my tenure here is done, whether that's five years or 10 years or 20 years or however long the Lord has me here, when that's all over, when it's all said and done, nobody on the staff or the, or the deacon board or, or any member of this church or anyone else will bear the responsibility for any mistake that I make. Whatever happens on my watch, happens on my watch. Now, that is frightening to me. <laughs> that just absolutely terrifies me, but it's, but it's good for you. It's good for you because there's nothing uh, better for a congregation than a really terrified pastor. Now, uh, not, not, not a pastor who's afraid of you, but I'm talking about a pastor who's afraid of God. 
A pastor who has near, no fear of God is a monstrosity because when it's all over, when it's all done with, he will wash his hands and point the finger at everybody else and, 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 and try to blame everybody else on it. And, and that just causes more confusion in the body. Pilate attempted to come out of, out of this with clean hands. And, and he, his, in, in spite of that, his name is said every Sunday morning and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of churches all across the world suffered under Pontius Pilate. The man who attempted to come out with clean hands came out with the dirtiest of all. Pilate tried to send Jesus to Herod to get him to, uh, to get Herod to take the blame and, or at least to share the blame. And Herod said, nope, he's all yours. I'm going to send him back. Pilate tried to put the responsibility on the Jews and the Jews said, no, you're the governor. Pilate tried to wash his hands and he ended up covered in blood. The third and the final thing is this. Pilate deceived himself about his own weakness. He, de he deceived himself even by his own pitiful gestures. Uh, you know, there, there's this one part of it just sort of sticks in the back of my mind, the part of one part of this story, you, you probably remember, you remember the part of the crucifixion. Now it's not recorded fully uh, in, in Matthew, but it is in John. It's recorded more, more fully there, but it's a passage where Pilate uh, writes out the sign that was going to go above Jesus's head. You remember that it said in three languages, this is Jesus King of the Jews is what it said. You remember that? And he puts it up over Jesus's head. And then Caiaphas and the high priest and all the other leading priests, they come to Pilate and they say, don't, don't write that. Don't write that. Write, this man said he was the king of the Jews. In other words, what was the issue here? They said, let's, let's make it clear. You, you see, uh, they, they, often, uh, they would often put the charge up over the head of the prisoner because they felt it would have a discouraging effect on crime. You know, so say things like this man is a thief or this man is a murderer. This man killed a Roman soldier. This man robbed a caravan, whatever. They did that so that seeing the horrible figure hanging there on the cross, you know, screaming and weak and suffering, hanging there day after day after day, dying this horrible death by crucifixion, that the people watching him would be discouraged from committing that crime. So Pilate put up over his head, this man is king of the Jews. Pilate and, and uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, now Pilate and the leading priests, they all got into an argument over this sign. What were Pilate and the priests arguing about? Their, their, their quibbling was over a technicality, but it was extremely important. The technicality was this. Was he killed because he really was the king of the Jews? Or was he killed because he claimed to be the king of the Jews and wasn't? The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas and his friends, they wanted it to be that he was killed because he claimed falsely to be the king of the Jews. However, Pilate, in response, and this is the part that, that, that kind of sticks in my mind, almost as a prophet, he says, what I've written, I've written. He's being killed because he was king of the Jews. Now, he didn't mean it like that, but that's, that's how it came out that way. Do you see? Now, what is that gesture all about? Why would he all of a sudden, now after all of this time, why would he finally, why would he stand up to the Sanhedrin now? I mean, been a better time to stand up for them a little bit earlier. 
Why, what was that gesture about, all about? That's the part that kind of sticks in my mind. Why did Pilate go through all of that? Here's what I believe, and you can take it or leave it. When you have thoroughly compromised yourself, totally and completely betrayed your post and your position, you've, you've dodged the responsibility bullet, and you allowed, you've allowed evil to happen on your watch, you will eventually make some meaningless gesture of courage to try to reinforce yourself. What I've written, I've written. I'm the governor. I'm the governor here. And you want to say, well, yeah, but I mean, weren't you the governor when they were saying crucify him? What happened back then? You understand what I'm saying? He, he's, he's crossing his arms in this moment and he's saying, I'm the big cheese here. And he's doing it over a point that is really insignificant in, in a sense. What was written on that sign did not change the horrible events that were happening on Golgotha. It didn't change history. It didn't change eternity. Pilate took a stand on a thing that didn't matter. Why? To, he did it to pacify his conscience over the blown opportunity to act in the courage of his convictions and to spare a righteous man from a death. So Pilate had made a false stand in order to wash his hands of the, of, of the past instead of actually admitting culpability for his own sin. Listen, this will break us. This will destroy us. This will bankrupt our society. It will ruin our souls. Poor, wretched Stupid, pathetic Pilate. It's Jesus standing in front of him. I mean, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Pilate, Pilate in response to this, this talk about truth, he says, oh yeah, well, what is truth? He wants to argue. And, and, and he, all of his Roman cynicism and all of his manipulative power politics robbed Pilate of the moment of divine consequence. He's standing before the very Son of God and he's quibbling over philosophy. The, the crucifixion, listen, I, I, I want you to understand this. If Pilate had said no, the crucifixion would have happened because it was, it was predet, uh, predetermined in the predetermined counsel of God that he was going to be crucified. We, we know that. Jesus was the lamb uh, slain from the foundation of the world, but but what if in that moment Pilate had looked at the Sanhedrin and said, crucify him if you will. And if Caesar decides to crucify me, so be it. But I will not sign this death warrant. The crucifixion may have happened, but it would have made all the difference in eternity for Pilate, potentially. All the what ifs and blown opportunities and missed occasions. Stand up. And be counted. Well, what does this teach us? I'll tell you one thing it teaches us. Know your own humanity. And know your own weaknesses. Here's the hard truth. I'm no different than Pontius Pilate. And neither are you. No man is so contemptible as when he lies to himself and tells himself that he's not temptable. There is a, the seed of Pilate inside the noblest breast here. Satan knows our weaknesses and he will manipulate us into vices, squeeze us so horrendously, apply pressure so huge that in and of ourselves we'll not be able to resist. 
I believe that right now throughout America, Satan is, is putting it in the hearts of, of various politicians. Run for the next office. Look higher. Look higher. Look higher. And, and he's going to engineer them right out onto the stage of human history, whether it's for the Senate or for the House of Representatives or for the vice presidency or the presidency or, or even some local or county seat. And he's using pride and ambition to engineer them out in the, onto the stage of human history where the vice can be applied to force them to lie and to to dissimulate so that they have to hide their past and, and, and then he can pop them at the point of their integrity and snap the cord of their virtue and the cord of, their, uh, of the courage of their convictions. Listen, any politician from either party that tells you that his private life is somehow or another disassociated from the execution of his or her public office is a liar and that is a dangerous man. It's a dangerous person. Because in response, that man will act courageously and boldly with the courage of a lion on some pitiful little issue that doesn't amount to even a hill of beans. And then in response, he will lie to you and steal from you. Why? Because a guy that will cheat on his wife is not just disloyal to his wife. He is disloyal. Here? He's not just being disloyal to one person. It shows a character trait of being disloyal. A person that will lie to you about his affairs or his past or his weaknesses or any other thing. It's, it's just not on that one isolated thing that he's going to lie to you about. He is a liar. He, he's a liar. Uh, you know, I believe Satan does this all the time and in different ways and maybe in, in less uh, uh, obvious ways. Like uh, he engineers some girl for, into a place where she feels loved. She, she's drawn to this boy. She's attracted to him. He, he, she's finally uh, finding tenderness and affection and, and affirmation from a male for the first time in her life. And she finds what she's been longing for, what she's been hoping for, what she's been waiting for all this time. This boy is all of her dreams. And then this boy says, if you really love me, you'll sleep with me. It, you'll yield to me and have sex. And suddenly in that moment, the squeeze is on. Will I do what I'm afraid, what, what I, will I give in to this pressure and compromise my convictions because I'm afraid of the consequences of standing up for the truth? The world and Satan will put her, uh, will, will in response, will hand her some pitiful little issue where she can say, well, I was courageous. I had safe sex. Sounds, sounds ludicrous to you and me here in this, in this context, but, but I'm telling you, that's the way this American society is thinking. Tiberius is alive and well. The emperor Caligula is coming like a train. You understand what's happening in our society? Our society is actually making heroes out of people who stand up for immorality. They're saying, oh, they're so brave. They're so brave. When in fact, in our culture, it takes far more courage to stand up for biblical morality. You need to say to yourself that there are situations and circumstances 
where I could be engineered out onto one stage or another uh, or, or out onto the end of one limb or another where, where just out of simple self-defense and a feeling of self-preservation that, that I would lie or exaggerate or I'd bend the truth or I'd sit still or keep my mouth shut or speak when I shouldn't speak or make an accusation when I shouldn't or something. The pressure could be applied to me just right where if I spend one moment in that pressure cooker in my own strength, I would do just what Pilate did. When you feel that pressure building, when you feel that heat being turned up, when you feel that you're being maneuvered by the enemy into a position where your convictions are being threatened, hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Be absolutely Utterly dependent on him every minute. Look to him for approval, not to anybody else. Second thing we learn is this. We, we need to not only be in touch with our own humanity and our own weaknesses and our own vulnerability to being squeezed. We need to be aware of other people's humanity. Other people's weakness. Others, other people's vulnerability to being manipulated by Satan. See, before I'm tempted to stand on the top rung of the ladder and spit down on top of Pontius Pilate, I'd better look in the mirror. Because you know what? Let's be honest. There have been times when I have betrayed my own convictions. I've kept my mouth, my mouth shut when I should have spoken up. I've spoken up when I should have kept my mouth shut. I've failed to give a proper answer. I, I've, I've times I've not been instant in season or out of season. I, I've had times when I've compromised, when 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 I when I just shot off my mouth in arrogance, when I should have kept my mouth quiet, when I shouldn't have said a word. It, it's easy to get all high and mighty about other people's moral failures in the pressure cooker of human history, isn't it? But the fact of the matter is. I could think pretty easily of times when, where I have betrayed the Lord and washed my hands. I'm not going to judge anybody anywhere because of his or her weaknesses. Instead, I'm going to kneel at the cross and say, hey, I want you to know I found an answer for my weakness. I found, I found grace for my failures. It is here for you too. Let, let me close with this. Pilate, pathetic, pitiful, weak, cowardly, uh, manipulated, overpowered Pilate. In stark contrast to Pilate stands the towering, heroic figure of Jesus who stood, beaten, whipped, humiliated, tortured, mocked, spat upon, accused, and eventually, ultimately, crucified. And he never defended himself. He never made a counter-accusation. He never said, yeah, but what, what about what they've done? He just stood there, and he let them kill him. Remember this, Jesus was not weak. He was meek. What is meek? Meek is power under control. Jesus was not the defeated. He was the conqueror. Jesus 
was in control of the whole mad play. What a heroic figure. He could have called 10,000 angels. He said, he said, I could call a legion of angels. I, I, and and, and I, could, I could wipe out all of this Roman army. I could, I could be out of this in an instant if I wanted to. But he stood there in his, in the, with all the power of the universe that, at his fingertips. And he said, I'm going to restrain myself because there's something more important going on here. What an astonishing, amazing, calm, unruffled, powerful man. There's a picture that I've seen in the past, and I, I couldn't find it using Google, which it means if, if you can't find it using Google, it doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, I think, but, but I, I, tr I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. I was going to show it to you, but I just, I'll just do my best to describe it. The, the picture is from the viewpoint uh, of looking sort of down the cross beam. The, uh, the, on the picture, the cross is laying on the ground and you're, and you're looking at cross beam and, and, and in the forefront, uh, foreground of the picture, you see the fingertips of Jesus stretched out on the cross. And, and in the picture, there's a hand holding a spike and then a huge hammer poised to strike that, that nail. And Jesus' head is turned like this. He's turned and he's looking toward that spike about to be driven into his hand. But however, upon closer examination, you see that he's really looking beyond the spike and he's looking right into your face. And on his face in this picture is an expression of magnificent calmness. There's no panic in his face. And I think that's a perfect reflection. I mean, he certainly would have shown the pain but it's as if Jesus were saying, go ahead. I'm not afraid. I'm going to do what I got to do, no matter what it costs me. Oh, to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we have looked at this man, Pontius Pilate's life, we see his failures and it's so easy for us to sit in judgment, God, but because we weren't there. But Lord, we know that he failed. We know that he missed out. He, he, he didn't grasp the moment. But God, help us to learn from that. Help us to not stand in pride and say, well, I would never. But God, that we would be humble. We would, we would humble ourselves before you and we would say, Lord, without you, that's me. I am Pontius Pilate. I will make those decisions. I will betray you. I will wash my hands of the situation. I'll do all those things. I'll compromise instead of standing for what is right and no, regardless of what it costs me. Lord, I pray that you would help us because, Lord, we, we're not going to do this on our own. We're, we're not going to be strong enough in our own strength. But we need the power of your spirit to work in us, to give us the courage and the boldness to stand up for, for, for truth, to, to, to do what we need to do, to say what we need to say, regardless of the price that it may cost us. Lord, that we would learn to speak the truth in love. And Lord, in those moments when, when we want to lash out, help us to keep quiet, give us the strength. Lord, help us. We, we, don't, we want to be the opposite of Pontius Pilate. We want to be like you, Jesus. And we want to be able to say, whatever it costs me, I'm going to do what the Father's called me to do. Make us those kind of people. Make us like Jesus. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.